Welcome to the Into Security Chats podcast, brought to you by Info Security Magazine, the leading industry magazine and website, and presented by me, Info Security Editorial Director, Eleanor Dalloway. This is the Into Security spin-off podcast that allows me to indulge in deeper meaningfuls with the industry's finest minds. It's my second Into Security Chats podcast, and I'm over the moon with my guest for today's interview. Lisa Porte has fast become a friend of InfoSecurity magazine and often contributes as a speaker for our online summits, webinars, or as a spokesperson in our features. Lisa has been the subject of one of our magazine Q&As before, but I jumped at this opportunity for some one-on-one time with her and to deep dive into the stuff that she's passionate about. So just a quick bit of background about Lisa. She began her career working in anti-piracy and counter-terrorism intelligence, researching online radicalization and the risky social engineering process undertaken by terrorist recruiters. She then moved into one of the UK police cybercrime units where she got to know the attackers' mindsets, methodologies, and discovered that most of the cases involved social engineering. Lisa then formed Red Goat Cybersecurity in 2017, where she's now partner, with the goal of reflecting the techniques and methodologies being used by hackers. hackers. They provide GCHQ certified social engineering training, security testing, wargaming exercise to help organisations prepare for an attack. So Lisa, hi, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So when I asked you what you wanted to talk about in this um, interview today, you said that militia inside, uh, malicious insider threats are your sweet spot. I think you said forte, which I thought was a great pun on your name. Um, <laughs> but what is it about this area of information security that so appeals to you? Um, Well, I think it's actually one of the areas that's often overlooked by security professionals. And I think it's also one of these areas that's really uncomfortable to accept and to deal with. Um, It's one of those situations where we've given access and trust over to these members of staff who then abuse it in such a manner to harm the company intentionally. Um, And I think that's why we find it really, really difficult. The other thing for sort of intentional insider threats, so people who really set out to steal something or commit fraud or sabotage the company in some capacity, we've seen a huge growth in it over the last few years with large companies, for example, Facebook, Amazon, NASA, Tesla, Google, I mean, the list goes on, of really innovative companies that have fallen foul of uh, intentional insider threats. And obviously, it's even heightened even more now because we're working from home. There's not the visibility of what your staff is are doing in the same manner that they it would have been in an open office environment. So I think it's a really interesting threat. And there's a lot of psychology as well that suggests that in times of sort of economic downturn, we actually see an increase in these sorts of industrial espionage or intentional insider threats in some capacity, uh, probably owing to the sort of turbulence of the job market and that sort of feeling of, of, of lack of security, I guess. But it's just a fascinating topic that um, personally I feel is, is hugely overlooked in the security industry. 
Yeah, because quite often when we look at insider threats generally as a, as a wider topic, we talk quite a lot about the unintentional and the accidental insider threat um, as opposed to the malicious. So, uh, you know, if, if you were to sort of take a stab in the dark, what sort of percentage or what size of that problem is malicious versus unintentional? So I think the key thing to note is not to use the word malicious. I think it's intentional because malice is is one motivation, but it's not the only motivation that people use. Um, fraud, for instance, is often not malicious per se. It's usually for personal gain. Um, That's a very good point. Yeah. So, so it's intentional versus unintentional. And I think obviously the you know the vast majority of the population are sort of law-abiding individuals who subscribe to a moral code and societal norms that we all accept and we're all happy with. There are a small number of people who who don't subscribe to that same way of behaving. So I think it is much, much lower in terms of the number of occurrences that we see. However, the damage is far, far greater. Uh, the reason, I think, is is both in terms of the access, because they have access to the really good stuff. Most people believe that this is personally identifiable information, but that's actually not the case. It's usually intellectual property, research and development, uh, business plans, things like that. And this has this has a huge value, obviously. And I think so that they have the access that they need to the really good stuff, the juicy stuff. Um, but the other side of it is from a PR perspective post-incident it looks really bad for the company. It looks really bad because it looks as if your company can't be trusted because the staff who essentially form your company can't be trusted. Um, and so for that reason, it's it's more rare, but it's definitely more damaging. And that sort of feeds into what you were saying at the beginning, actually, about this whole sort of level of discomfort around the intentional insider threat space isn't it and, and that's sort of the re- reputation and how that reflects on the company itself in the public eye or externally is all part of that discomfort I'm guessing yeah definitely and it you know we don't like to sort of implement some sort of Stasi style uh, monitoring in our companies that's not kind of the the culture that we want to foster um but I do think that, you know, we do have to accept that these things do happen. And certainly certain companies are more vulnerable to it than others. Um, and so we have to be more aware of it and, and and face the fact that it is a reality. Yeah. And I guess it's almost the emotional side of things as well, isn't it? You don't like to think if, if something bad happens, knowing that one of your own has done that intentionally has the emotional burden and the, the, the sadness and the anger and all of those emotions that go around it as well as the the impact and reputation and everything else right totally and I mean you know on a completely different note we've seen this recently with the police right we had the uh, the case of that young lady who was unfortunately attacked um by the police officer and again you know that will be a similar feeling it will be that feeling of you know what we're all doing the right thing and there's this one person who's done something really horrific um and that will shake those people up because the chances are you probably didn't realize that that person was doing what they were doing um so there there is always that sort of side of guilt as well from it um but even in cases like edward snowden um when the nsa interviewed his colleagues post uh, realization that he had exfiltrated all this data lots of them had picked up on small little things that were inconsistent with his usual behavior or that were perhaps a little bit concerning but i think we've also got this sort of feeling in us that we don't really want to report 
uh, or kind of whistleblow on our colleagues because it's it's quite an unpleasant feeling, isn't it, to sort of, I guess, tell on people um, mm. unless you're absolutely sure. It, it sort of feels like you're stirring up trouble. Yeah, and especially in, in Britain, I think it's a very British thing, isn't it, to feel uncomfortable about situations like that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think the police had a campaign back in the day about uh, if you see sort of something suspicious at a train station, you know, back in the day when we were sort of really, really worried about terrorism. Uh, And and they never got any reports, really, because I think people, they felt that, oh, you know, if I report that person, does that make me racist? Or does that make me this or that? And so for that reason, I'm just going to leave it. And I think that's, that's the problem we have in society is encouraging people to speak up. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think your sort of reference back to the Sarah Everett case as well is really relevant. And I think in, in that case and how that probably applies to intentional um, threat, insider threat as well, is that the long term ramifications can be more serious And um, in those cases because you have to take a look at culture. You have to take a look at what's happening on in your own space, in your own territory and figure out how to prevent that from happening again. So, yeah, I think that was um, a really interesting analogy, actually. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your time in the public sector. You've obviously gone from that time in the UK cybercrime police and you're now in the private sector working for yourself. I was sort of interested, really, and do you miss anything about that time that you, you spent in the public sector? And do you ever imagine yourself going back? Yeah, it's interesting because I went from the private sector to the public sector to the private sector, which is apparently something not many people do. Um, and I would say that it's it's a difficult one because I found being in the police, one of the best things was the camaraderie that you had within your teams. And certainly when I worked in the counterterrorism world, there was a real sense of everyone helping each other and being there to support each other and going above and beyond in a way and in a capacity that I just haven't seen in the private sector at all there's there's this really really strong sense of bonding um which i loved and i thought was brilliant and you know you could rely on your co- your colleagues to help you out or you know assist you in any way um which was brilliant however i love the sense of sort of creative freedom and innovation that you get in the private sector and unfortunately uh, obviously i can't speak for pri- public sector organizations around the world but in the uk it's very much red tape and well no we've always done it this way and really really stifles innovation it really stifles creativity um and I suppose on some level they have to be like that to some to some extent um but for me that was very frustrating because cyber is such a fast-paced discipline and such a fast-paced threat that I really feel that without allowing people the freedom to be come up with creative solutions to problems, you're really tying your hands behind your back. And that really frustrated me. So for that reason, I would say I probably wouldn't, but I definitely think it was a great starting point for a career. And I think um, people who are thinking about getting into cyber should definitely consider getting involved and, and working in the police because it, it's a really eye-opening experience that I think is, is just so valuable. How how do you view the collaboration between private sector and public sector in cybersecurity space? Is there enough communication? Is is there enough of that innovation sort of passing over that line? And um, what can we do to improve that, I suppose? I think it's terrible. I think, to be perfectly honest, the private sector and the public sector do not work well together at all in the cyberspace. Um, and I Why? think that, 
I just think I think there's just too many. Uh, there's you've got sort of a very immovable um, force that is the public sector that has its rules and its hierarchies and its um, sort of ways of operating and then you've got the private sector who are very fast-paced very uh, innovative um, and coming up with new solutions and the two just seem to rub up against each other and cause friction as opposed to feeding each other um, and I think it's it is really difficult and you've seen this a lot with charities as well I mean I know Christopher Hadnagy who runs the Innocent Lives Foundation that look into uh, protecting kids online, so sort of stopping child exploitation online, uh, paedophilia, that kind of thing. Um, really, really good cause. But he's found it so difficult to work with law enforcement around the world because they want things done their way, their certain way, and and are very inflexible in terms of working and and collaborating with the private sector. And I think it's a real shame because one thing law enforcement lacks is manpower funding and you know and skill sets and i think that's where the private sector could really really contribute yeah i totally agree it's really frustrating as well um especially when you summarize it like that so at redgo actually let me just ask you this why is it called redgo <laughs> people always ask me this um so when I was founding the company, I could, we couldn't think of a name for it. We couldn't uh, work out something that was sort of fun and a bit different. Um, and so we, we, we knew we wanted it to have the word red in it. And so we were reading um, some articles in The New Scientist. And uh, one of the articles said that some scientists uh, in London had discovered that goats could detect intruders into their herd by hearing just their voice. Okay. And um, and so we thought, well, that's kind of what we're trying to train staff inside organisations to do is to detect, you know, potential intruders through social engineering and whatnot um, through, you know, voice or email. So it became Red Goat. But the sort of side story of it is that um, back where we could go out and into offices and, and, and whatnot, some of my clients would, uh, the receptionist would call up and say, the goat lady is here, which I thought was like <laughs> the best thing I've ever been called in my life. <laughs> I'm always getting pictures, conjuring up pictures of, you know, like crazy cat ladies that are at home with all their cats. That makes me think you're crazy goat lady and you've just got a house full of gorgeous goats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And goats are pretty cute, to be fair. <laughs> at Red Goat, as I was saying, um, you run cyber crisis exercises. Have you got any sort of favourite anecdotes that you could share with us around those exercises you run? Yeah, so actually there's one um, that I loved the most, which was um, a port that we ran an exercise for. And the, the purpose of these exercises, in case people are not uh, aware of what the purpose is, is to sort of ready the crisis management team, the CMT, to deal with any sort of crisis. Now, ports are subject to something called the ISPS code. And this is a, sort of a safety code um, for shipping ports. And one of the requirements of it is yearly exercises. So people who, companies that run ports tend to be very well versed in how to run exercises. Um, and we were running a cyber one that linked into sort of physical ramifications. And the best thing about it was that we had the cooperation of the ambulance and the fire service as well. So we managed to run this absolutely horrific scenario where things had blown up and there were bodies that were actual bodies of actors who were lying on the floor covered in fake oh blood. Wow. And um, the sort of the CEO and the CMT of the port had to deal with this scenario and kind of 
work out solutions and brief the media and all the rest of it. And it was like directing a movie. It was the most amazing thing ever. That's really large scale. That's, um, you know, quite something to pull off. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not it's definitely not suitable for crisis management teams that haven't done a lot of exercising because it will massively be overwhelming and, you know, terrifying freak them out yeah totally freak them out <laughs> so it's definitely not a first step but uh, when if you've got you know if you're quite used to exercising it's brilliant because it really puts you under pressure you have to brief the media obviously they're fake media um but you have to deal with all these things and it's the worst situation possible and if you can handle that you can handle anything wow but I mean it sounds amazing what about your uh, more sort of I want to say standard, but that that's, that comes across wrong. Your more average um, cyber crisis exercises, what do they look like? So we always do them in a very immersive way because I'm a strong believer in the fact that, you know, we could sit here and, and talk you through a PowerPoint, but that's going to have very little um, relation to what you're actually going to have to deal with. And one of the big things about crises is that they put pressure on you and they're horrible and they're not going to they're going to be the worst day of your life and there's not going to be enough whiskey in the world to drown your sorrows so in order to put you under that pressure we create um we usually do lots of prep where we involve staff so we find that this is really key so one of the recent ones we did um we actually got some fake actors and actresses to be the media to interview on camera um members of staff and we got them to say various things from, oh, I've been told not to say anything about the breach, all the way to staff saying, oh, I've got some really juicy details for you. And the best thing is watching the CEO of these really big companies bury their heads in their hands <laughs> thinking, oh, my God, what is happening? Um, and that's where I get my job satisfaction from. <laughs> I bet. I bet. But, but I, I guess even those people in those roles, and maybe sometimes especially those people in those senior roles, the, the board, the C-level, they must learn a lot from it too. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I think, you know, um, you've just... <laughs> It's about learning all these lessons. And, and and I always say to companies, it's a safe space to make mistakes. You can make every mistake in the world and you can learn from it in a way that the public aren't going to see, the media, your shareholders, you know, no one's going to know. It, it's a really safe space. Um, and it's like fire drills. You know, you can have a brilliant plan for evacuating the building. But if you haven't tested it, you don't actually know it's going to work when you have to evacuate the building. Right. No, that totally makes sense. How has COVID impacted your business then? How are you? How have you had to work around that? And do you think that the way you teach um, has sort of had a negative impact or suffered from from COVID? It's definitely shaken things up. I mean, we have basically had to innovate we're a small company we had to innovate very quickly and put all of our training courses online um, do all of our exercises online um, everything suddenly had to become digital and remote which I mean is great but I think there's not a company on this planet who hasn't been shaken up by the pandemic um, it's really funny I'm a, I'm actually a very anti-social individual I'm the sort of person at a conference who would run away after the conference to avoid conversations um, <laughs> really I am people don't realize that um, however after a year of lockdown I am desperate to have vendors coming up to me and harassing me I'm desperate for that human interaction again <laughs> 
how funny I think yeah it, it, that's interesting actually because I I happen to know quite a few introverts who've had who've said similar things but at the beginning it was like their wildest dreams have come true <laughs> and actually after a year of it they're actually ready to kind of get back out there and actually feel a bit more extroverted in that approach as well totally it's insane I'm actually like it's almost forced me to be sociable almost <laughs> Almost. Um, you've been working with victims of romance fraud. So can you tell me a little bit about that? And it, this is one of those areas that really breaks my heart. Um, what's happening in the world of dating scams and romance fraud at the moment? So unfortunately, and perhaps unsurprisingly, it's exploded through the pandemic. Um, and it's it's one of those ones that breaks my heart as well, more more so than others. And I think uh, I've spoken to a lot of victims, uh, and I'll talk you through a couple of the cases I've I've been looking at recently. Um, and the thing that really breaks my heart is it's not just the fact that they have, in their minds, genuinely fallen in love with somebody, genuinely had this relationship, and all the hope that 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 comes with, but also they feel such immense shame for falling for it and such immense shame coming to their families and friends and telling them what has happened um it's just it's just horrific on every level I mean I think there's this sort of belief that it's sort of desperate old women who are a bit clueless and I think that's so so far from what I've seen uh for example three cases that I've worked on all involve women uh one was a lawyer one's a doctor one's an entrepreneur all highly highly intelligent women all incredibly independent, strong, you know, successful in their own right. Um, They're all in their mid 40s. And and I think people sometimes have the tendency to say, oh, well, that's because, you know, older women or, you know, slightly older women, etc. And I think it's actually because women in their 40s are more likely to have money and they're more likely to have assets that can be liquidated. Um, And so for that reason, they're just a better target from a money perspective. Uh, But the lawyer, she um, she actually ended up remortgaging her house and sending £280,000 to who she thought was her partner um, and never heard from him again. And oh my goodness. And so she'd never met him in real life before. No, and this is the thing. And I and it's it seems to you and I who are currently not caught up in it, absolutely bizarre. But what you have to understand is that these people have gone through a process that you and I have not gone through. Yeah. They have had that dialogue with these individuals online, and that has it progressed to messaging, and that's progressed to emailing, and that's progressed, and so on and so forth. It's not just like someone comes up to you and says, "Can you remortgage your house and hand me that money?" Of course, that would be a no. Um, this happens over a period of a year or, or nine months or whatever, and you know it's a slower process. And all these women ended up giving large quantities of money over to their partners. Or who they thought they were partner their partners, and all three of them had never even video chatted with the person. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and these are intelligent women. You know, you can't argue that for some reason no. they're, they're naive. You know, these are really, really intelligent, independent, powerful, inspirational women. And I think the reason that scares me is that shows us that in the right situation, that could happen to any of us. Yeah, and like you say, it's it's. The, the embarrassment, I think you used the word shame, um, of it is one of the saddest pills to swallow about it all, isn't it? Totally, yeah, because I think they think people think they're stupid. 
and I yeah. keep saying to them you know it's not it's not like that you know you've been part of this campaign where someone built rapport with you a journey yeah. and you know unless you've been on that journey you can't comment on it and the saddest thing is is it's the loss of their money or the loss of you know their their things their possessions their finances but also like you say a loss of their their heart like their, their right they're, they're losing somebody that they believe is a partner at the same time as the fact that they they're losing money it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking totally because we've all had relationships that have ended not when we've wanted them right where we feel we've been dumped or you know whatever yeah. and, and it's the worst feeling it's a horrible horrible feeling yeah. and then to have given your money and remortgaged your house on top of that yeah I can't imagine what that feels like no, and I mean, we we started this podcast right at the beginning about talking about malice and malicious and, or, you know, this is obviously happening for personal gain, like you say, but this is, this is the definition of malice, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, these people... We, we know for a fact that they run off scripts. That's one thing. So we know that the main hotspots for this to happen are Colombia, Venezuela and the Philippines. Um, and it seems to me to be the case that there seems to be sort of essentially companies set up that rotate different people who run scripts. So they are actually probably not talking to the same individual every day. Um, and the, you can tell that because the language in the messages is ever so slightly different. The spelling right. mistakes are ever so slightly different. Um, Interesting. So it's it's almost certainly a campaign. But if you think about it, um, <laughs> if you and I were to go and do this, for example, and we could make two hundred and eighty thousand pounds for a few months work. Yeah, that's worth the effort, isn't it? There's something so disturbing about that thought as well. that It isn't one person that they're talking to that they like you say, it could have been two or three different people, like a team of people. And that person isn't just not who you thought it was, but it's actually not a person at all. Yeah, exactly. And you're not even talking to one person and you yeah. think you're meeting this person who you've fallen in love with and it could be a collection of different men and women. It's, that is so frightening and disturbing. So yeah. what, what are you doing to help them then, Lisa? Are you um, are you part of the investigation side? Are you working on the sort of counselling side? What's your involvement? A bit of everything, really. Um, teaching them mainly in retrospect. Unfortunately, there's not much you can do once that money is gone. Um it, it tends to disappear pretty fast. Um, so in terms of getting it back, it's very unlikely. Um, in terms of catching the individuals, again, it's very unlikely. I mean, the situation, for example, in Venezuela at the moment is not really conducive to uh, law enforcement collaborating with Venezuelan law enforcement. You know, there's pretty serious situations going on there. Um, and so it's very unlikely that you're going to catch the individual. However, what can happen is an understanding of, of the process that's happened, understanding the sort of social engineering that took place, and then also looking at strategies for making sure that never happens again, whilst also, I think, maintaining this sort of air of reality that you do need to be able to have relationships and you need to be able to meet people. And often that happens online. So we have to have a way of being able to carry on with that but without putting ourselves in undue risk yeah absolutely and I suppose th there's also it's it's important to find a way to use these these stories these these tales of heartbreak to educate people so that others don't fall for similar attacks do you think that there is enough awareness around romance scams and dating fraud um and if not, what could we be doing to get those messages out in a better way? 
I think it's it's really difficult. I think at the end of the day, you have to be suspicious of every single person you meet um, who you don't know. And I think what you need to also establish is, you know, thinking about the reality of the situation not being pulled in too deep. Um, so if they won't video chat with you, there's something wrong. Everybody has mobile phones with cameras on. If they can't send you photos and they can't video chat with you, something is not right. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to listen to that feeling and respond to it as opposed to just taking their word for it. Um, I think that's one of the key things. But unfortunately, we've also got to learn a lot more about ourselves and recognize how we're feeling and how we're going to respond to things. Because if you want something, social engineers generally, whether they're romance uh, scammers or whether they're you know people who do phishing attacks or whatever, they know what that you're wanting something. And then they tap into that and you respond very positively to them. So I think knowing those vulnerabilities in ourselves a bit like canary tokens essentially you know when someone goes after something that we want we have to have an alert go off that sort of says we need to exercise some caution here I think one of the things that I find the saddest is especially you know the examples you've given and that they're very intelligent women is that they will have undoubtedly been at some point in this process the head versus heart and I'm sure that at some stages their suspicions they, they had suspicions and that their head was sort of saying there, there's something odd going on here but their heart wanted to believe in that relationship and that person so much that it probably outweighed the head and that to me is just so sad. Yeah, I think that's true as well. I think we often form ideals of people and we think they are one way, but actually they're not. And we only bring in the evidence that supports that conclusion. Yeah, totally. OK, so I would like to move into the quick fire rounds, which is how I end all the, these podcasts with a few different questions for you. Um, okay. So the first is what's the most common misconception about you? Uh, I think one of the common misconceptions is that I'm a, like a super girly person. Um, and actually, I'm one of these people who sort of my perfect scenario being kind of completely covered in mud on a mountain bike, talking about <laughs> space and rockets and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's kind of my my sort of thing. But I think people think that when they see me sort of, you know, looking all prim and proper at a conference that I'm sort of this super feminine individual and actually couldn't be further from the truth. I think from following you on Twitter as well, uh, your, your passions and the whole covered in mud talking about space really comes out. So. I'm glad, I'm glad. I feel like I've got you, I've got you pegged. Um, one piece of technology that you couldn't live without, so it could be hardware, software, um, an app, but you can't say mobile phone. I'm super ashamed to say this. Okay. Apple Pay. And I mean like totally addicted to the point where if I see that I can't pay with Apple Pay, then I will find another shop because I just can't be bothered to find my cards and pay with something anymore. You, it, I feel exactly the same. I just don't bother taking my purse normally. And they keep making the limit higher and higher, don't they? I know. So I'm not so even sure I know where it is. Up. I don't even know where it is anymore. It's somewhere. I don't think you should be ashamed to say that one. <laughs> um, so one of my favourite podcasts is Desert Island Discs. So I, uh, I'd like I like to ask my interviewees to pick just one song, um, one book, and one luxury item that they'd take if they were stranded on a desert island for a year on their own. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I'm going to go. We built this city by by Starship because nice. love that. Um, my book would be Endurance by Scott Kelly, which is about his year in space on ISS which is the most inspiring book I have ever read in my life. So I recommend it. 
Um, and then my Bose noise cancelling headphones so I don't have to listen to any other sounds and I can just tune into my one song for an entire year. <laughs> I think once you came back, you'd probably never want to listen to it again. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably fair, yeah. Um, what's your favourite Twitter account to follow? Okay, well, anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I'm a bit of a space nerd. So it would be either Roscosmos, which is the Russian space agency, and they have beautiful, beautiful photographs, or SpaceX, because, I mean, it's SpaceX. Everyone loves it. Love it. Okay. And finally, who would you like to hear interviewed on one of my future Into Security Chats podcasts? Uh, my top picks would be Scott Helm. And if you do interview Scott, please make sure you wind him up about letting me drive his track day car because <laughs> that's going to happen, I think. We'll get some okay. votes going on that. Um, or Christian Toon is another excellent one. Or Kevin Jones from Airbus. Those three, I absolutely love the content they put out. Amazing. Well, that's a good target list for me. So I will crack on with that. Well, I've got to wrap this up now. Um, I've gone, probably gone way over time. But Lisa, um, aka the goat lady, you have been wonderful. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Into Security Chats. I've been Eleanor Dalloway, and it has been a pleasure to have you listening in. Join the conversation next month as I get to know my next guest.